Welcome back. This is Ad Hoc. My name is Matthew. I'm Jaden. I'm Jack. And today we talk about artificial intelligence. The AI industry always has something new to offer, but every once in a while, AI really enters the spotlight and commands our attention. It happened around 25 years ago when IBM's chess computer, Deep Blue, beat world champion Garry Kasparov. That was kind of our first taste of the blurry line between human and machine intelligence. It's happened a few times since, but one of the more recent, more public and popular cases was a couple of months ago with OpenAI's new chatbot. ChatGPT took us by surprise. It scared some of us a little as well with its human-like abilities in storytelling, poetry, comedy, history, you name it. And whenever these really popular AI developments occur, they remind us that the conversation around AI shouldn't be one that takes place only in Silicon Valley. As AI is permeating some of the important parts of our lives, it's going to demand answers to political questions and moral questions too. What does it mean that the ability to think logically and rationally is no longer the unique attribute of human beings? And how should we feel about giving up control over profoundly important decisions to another species? We try to tackle some of these questions today. We talk about what AI can already do and some of the controversies that have arisen. And we also dive into the future, talking about the AI revolution that many people think is on the horizon. Let's start with ChatGPT. At its essence, ChatGPT relies on a software, GPT-3, that's a gigantic language model. It's trained on an enormous amount of data, and it uses pattern recognition to produce human-like responses tailored to whatever you're asking it. There's some thinking that GPT is a step towards the more powerful so-called artificial general intelligence, but let's set aside that question for now and just ask how GPT is already starting to transform our lives. One subject of serious debate lately is the role of GPT in education. There are concerns about cheating, questions about what constitutes effective teaching. What do you guys think the role for GPT should be in education? Well, I think, first of all, it's good that you're asking this question because as an educational tool or a tool in any of what we talk about here, GPT is instantly one of the most popular tools, fastest to become popular that we've ever seen. Uh, UBS, a bank, found that it has over 100 million active users in two months. So Zoom, TikTok, Instagram, blown away. None of them had this fast growth. So I think a lot of teachers are justifiably nervous. My general opinion is that in some time, GPT will become the calculator of writing in that it will become a source of outlines and easy to accomplish writing tasks. Um, we, it gets more philosophical when you ask, will it ever be able to replicate human creative writing in a way that's on par with the, the great writers of today? I, no, that's my opinion. Um, but obviously it will impact education, especially writing education. Um, it's a little tacky to ask the source what you think the source will do, <laughs> but I was curious what ChatGPT thought. So I asked it, how do you think ChatGPT will affect right. education? And it gave me some good points. You know, it said personalized learning. You know, it can tailor learning material to students. Maybe. Uh, maybe that's malarkey. <laughs> uh, it said supplement traditional education by answering questions and coming up with practice questions. True. Yeah. Automating administrative tasks. I thought that was a really interesting one. Yeah. Because if teachers can cut out a lot of time grading, let's say, short answer responses that can easily be kind of graded right or wrong by an AI model, that they can spend more time on lesson plans. Um, 
But I have one line at the end that I just thought was pretty funny. It said, it's important to note that AI systems like GPT should not replace human teachers. Uh, like, self-aware. Yeah, it, no, no shit, Sherlock. Self-aware. Um, excuse my language. It, it's self-aware. Um, but I just thought it was funny that GPT automatically assumes that everyone's rushing to replace teachers with itself. Um, it's a little bit cocky, perhaps. But yeah, I think most of its points are over, overly optimistic. Obviously, the main one will be that students will attempt to cheat more by using GPT to write. Uh, so teachers will have to adapt. I think just do more things in class, talk about why we actually learned to write in the first place. Yeah, I, I think there are a couple paths that the use of GPT can go down. One is just the complete preventative path. And many places have adopted that, New York City. Uh, the New York City Department of Education recently banned the use of ChatGPT on all school networks and devices. Seattle did a very similar thing. My tutorial in one of my classes here bans the use of ChatGPT. There you go. My TF did talk about it on our first day of class. I've yeah. talked about it in my classes as well. Some schools are taking a softer approach. There's this very prestigious school in London, the Allen School, uh, which is flipping to like a flipped classroom style of learning. So the homework and the essay writing gets done in class questions get asked in class, and then the learning itself is done at home. I personally think that's like the worst way of learning. I hate it in the classes I've done. But all that is assuming using ChatGPT is cheating. There have been other ways that there's a Princeton student recently who developed uh, GPT-0. Uh, I'm sure this guy gets out a lot. <laughs> but it's meant for teachers to what identify. What is GPT-0? It identifies, or tries to identify at least. There's a lot of information that this is prone to error when a student is using ChatGPT wow. in their essay writing. That's a real buzzkill. Real buzzkill. I mean, but maybe maybe it's good, because maybe students shouldn't always be using ChatGPT. But all this preventative measure stuff, I think, avoids a more fundamental question of whether GPT should be used in everything, whether it's even worth it to write essays by yourself if ChatGPT can produce a similar style, very good essay in a matter of seconds. I think my answer is yes. I think in the past maybe couple of decades, education has, has taken a shift towards more creative problem solving uh, based work. We've gotten away, maybe at least early, pretended to get away from memorization and facts. But I think there's a difference between memorizing the types of animals that exhibit this trait and learning how to write and think for yourself. So even if ChatGPT can create amazing essays, I think it's still important for students to know how to write so that they're just not regurgitating stuff in the future. I read this book recently called The Case Against Education, and it attempts yeah, to just... you're still in school. So I'm still in school. convinced you that much. A yeah. little bit of cognitive dissonance for sure, but it kind <laughs> of, its its core aim is to destroy the argument that you just made, Jaden. Oh, no. Essentially claiming that in most respects, education is a waste of time and money and that it's useful as a signal to employers, and because of that, it correlates with higher income and whatnot. But that, Is this higher oh, education specifically? It's, or? it's both. A lot of it's centered on higher education, I believe. But it makes the case and cites some evidence that a lot of students exhibit very minimal gains in critical thinking skills or anything of the like after undergoing an education. So you know, maybe there is a case to be made that it's time for yeah. some kind of AI-led revolution in the way that we approach and experience yeah. education. Surely. I, I think one area which ChatGPT could be very useful, Jackie, you mentioned this, is by teachers administratively. I think that's a great way to use ChatGPT. 
grading has certainly been brought up. I think there's another danger there, though. ChatGPT, along with a bunch of other uh, AI programs, has been shown to show bias um, in, in education and uh, in the workforce. Uh, there was a study. Uh, ChatGPT was asked to give feedback to a bubbly receptionist and also an unusually strong construction user and immediately assumed that the receptionist was female and the construction worker was male, even without, be even without being prompted. Additionally, the same study went on and asked ChatGPT to write performance reviews, be considered close to grading, uh, for the same description of a person, but one was a man, one was a female, and one was unspecified. Did it over and over and over again. And on average, ChatGPT consistently wrote about 15% more feedback for women. So wow. if mm -hmm. more more feedback, more feedback. Do you know, was that necessarily more not necessarily negative, negative all the time, but it shows that there is a clear difference yeah. when it recognizes that someone is a female versus a male. And this can extend to racial biases as well, that if you're just using this always in the classroom, it could pose some problems. Yeah. And I think that gets to an issue that we'll we'll touch on with a lot of areas of AI. I mean, an AI similar to how teachers would tell us in school about a smart board. You know, it's only as smart as the data that you feed it. Um, but yeah, I think it's not surprising we're going to see biases that have been reflected across the internet in a model that's trained on millions of terabytes of internet data. Um, but yeah, I would be really skeptical if I was a student right now and my professor said that even our short answer test was being graded by ChatGPT. Um, I just, I would just doubt its accuracy or its equity. Um, especially in a, on a written test, maybe with longer essay response questions. I could see in the future that changing. Uh, but right now, I at least see GPT as more of a recall check, um, the ability to generate independent writing that's like, stylistically good, I think is not that good. You know, people yeah. have looked at ChatGPT in a really, you know, writing critic kind of way and found that it uses passive voice too much, you know, really nitpicky things <laughs> like that. But I think anyone that reads its responses will say that it's good. Um, but it wouldn't be something that you want to create really high-brow theory. I think there's also the issue when using ChatGPT that it likes to lie. It's not totally truth-based. You're calling it a demagogue right now? I'm, I'm saying that it's a stubborn person that wants to find information when you ask it a question and wants to give you an answer. And it's even more dangerous because it's extremely stubborn. It's kind of like any uh, Harvard government major. <laughs> Good at bullshitting. Good, say, yeah. good at bullshitting, and that's dangerous. In fact, Princeton, there's this Princeton professor, Arvind Narayanan, who called it a, quote, bullshit generator. It spews stuff. A lot of the time it's right, but a lot of the time it's wrong. And, and journalists all over have been playing with it. They've been asking it to write articles of their own. There was an insider journalist who asked it to write an article of her and found that it was completely full of misinformation. And then when prompted about that misinformation, told it was wrong, it backed it up, defended it again and again, even when it was clear that it was untrue. So that's a very big danger with ChatGPT, that on top of not always being truthful, it doesn't admit that it's lying. Yeah, and it, the people who design AI, I'm sure hopefully would be more accountable for those types of mistakes, but I think that's gonna be a limitation across the board yeah. of right now, GPT models or chatbot models like that. Like, How can we expect them to express contrition, regret, you know, right. expressions of mis making mistakes? Because um, I think we'd associate that with human-level emotion. No, yeah. um, it's backed into a corner. It's going to defend its methods. Yeah, and I think OpenAI has acknowledged it. They said 
before that he could, quote, lower the costs of disinformation campaigns, ChatGPT right. could in the future. It's, it's, it's easy for people to get into a hole where they just automatically trust AI. And so when AI is saying lies on a huge scale, politicians uh, and other celebrities could use it to amplify disinformation. Yeah, so I mean, even even GPT already is forcing us to grapple with some of those complicated questions. Let's talk more broadly now about some of the moral questions posed by AI in general as it enters important parts of our lives. AI is becoming involved in everything from criminal justice sentencing to policing to driving with self-driving cars, uh, employment decisions, medical decisions. And we're being forced to grapple with these extremely complex philosophical questions, like should we be giving up control over these extremely consequential decisions? And what do we do when AI messes up? And can AI do a lot of these things better than we can? Let's start with criminal justice. I mean, how do you guys feel about robots making these questions at the center of fairness and the sentences people get, the likelihood of neighborhoods being policed and that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, I'll say to set the scene, AI, and AI-like models are already being used across criminal justice from diverse as uh, directing police departments where to police based on crime rates, facial recognition and CCTV cameras, and uh, particularly controversial risk assessment algorithms, yeah. which are used post-arrest to determine a phalanx of different things, uh, whether the defendant should be granted bail, how severe their sentence should be, where they should be jailed, things like that. Um, so this is a obviously a salient and active question. However, I'll, I'll also add that from what I've been reading, it seems like criminal justice as a field is one of the more reluctant to adopt AI compared to uh, retail, lots of different other institutions, for example. Um, part of that is due to a general effect called algorithmic inversion, mm -hmm. uh, which is just people have a tendency to prioritize human decision-making. Even if we have some concept that AI is getting smarter and smarter, we'll always typically prefer a human over an AI until we're you know, definitively proven otherwise. Um, the counterpoint on that, though, is that I think criminal justice is special because increasingly in the past 10 years, we're so aware of how deeply flawed we are yeah. as humans in making these decisions. I just look at judges. I think judges are some of the most interesting actors in the criminal justice system um, because the more you look, the more you're just kind of dis confused and of disgusted at the different cognitive biases the judges make, not always intentionally. You know, this isn't necessarily an issue of intentional racism or even subconscious racism. Uh, but I'll just throw out one study um, from Louisiana about judges who were college football fans. Yeah, huh. I was going to mention this one. Yeah, I mean, it yeah. got a lot of press um, because yeah. it's, it's a good study. I mean... Judges who got their law degree from LSU, huge football team, go Tigers, were more likely to hand out harsher sentences to juvenile defendants after LSU lost. Yeah. And that's just really alarming. Yeah. So that's the potential of AI and criminal justice. If you have a, a well-trained AI model that can help produce sentencing recommendations, you know, nothing binding, a recommendation that didn't have that LSU college football bias, that would be a lot better for the juvenile defendants of Louisiana. Yeah, things like that. I mean, also, some studies have shown that whether the judge has eaten lunch that day yeah. affect the gravity of the sentence that they confer onto a defendant. And also, 
more broadly and maybe more dangerously, judges are subject to political or social pressures, maybe some yeah, pressure absolutely. to enforce tough on crime sentences. And could an algorithm escape that? Potentially. Yeah. And yeah. On, the, on the judge one, on, on the eating one, it's a huge difference. There was a study done in, in Israel that examined eating and then judges' decisions on parole uh, after meals and then right before meals. After a meal, judges generally give 65% of uh, people that come in, they grant them parole. And that number slowly drops to 0% over the course of the next few hours until the next meal. It's almost a 60% difference between right after a meal and before the next meal. It's a huge difference. So that maybe shows that AI could be used in the criminal justice system. On one thing you said, Jack, there is a lot of danger in things like criminal risk assessment algorithms, a lot of the time because they rely on historical data. And historical data can be very misleading because it gives correlations but not causations, and then uh, AI can use those as causal factors. For instance, a lot of historical data shows more recidivism rates among low-income offenders and uh, people of color. And a piece of AI could, could look at that and then say, this person is more likely to commit another crime, even if it's not causally true that being low income makes you more likely to reoffend. So that could prove very, very dangerous. And it already has, there's already evidence that AI has been harsher on people of low income backgrounds and uh, of minorities than others. Yeah. And I mean, someone could fairly say that those biases are already existing and how could AI be worse? I mean, if you compare a a Sam Bakeman freed risk assessment score that has to be about a zero <laughs> compared to a juvenile defendant in Louisiana who might be a person of color, the judge is going to be just as biased as maybe an AI system. But there, I think what's hopeful is that there are ways to reduce bias. I mean, you, you change the data that they look at. Like you said, Jaden, income is definitely a factor that's correlated with race because a lot of these, uh, to my knowledge, risk assessment scores already don't use race as an independent variable, which is good. Um, but you, you have to look at the factors that are correlated with race too. So I think uh, age of first arrest and conviction and then also voluntary surrender, yeah. if you kind of carefully analo- analyze those variables, maybe remove them, um, kind of fine tune a risk assessment algorithm, I think you can hopefully get to closer to an unbiased system. Um, so I'm pretty hopeful. Uh, other people are much more cautionary, um, you know, Uh, There's an organization, Law for Black Lives, uh, whose executive director has said that AI is a way to sanitize and legitimize oppressive systems in criminal justice. There's a lot of cautionary movements out there. Um, But I'm pretty hopeful because I'm generally pretty down on equity in the criminal justice system. And I think that AI has the potential to make headway. Yeah, I think what people are reluctant about or hesitant about is complete deference to AI in sentencing decisions or policing decisions. I think we'd be very scared about that. Most people would. Maybe that's just AI aversion, as you say. Maybe that's some cognitive bias we need to overcome. But I don't think so, because I think there are, as Jaden said, serious issues with the way inherently that a lot of algorithms gather data based on historical facts that they mess up correlation and causation. So maybe it's a case to be made for using AI as uh, complements or supplements to judging decisions, policing decisions, rather than as substitutes for them. Yeah, there, there even, even is a problem with that, though, 
because sometimes it's argued that AI can be used for things like facial recognition, for identifying criminals and then bringing them in, and then using humans to find out the truth afterwards. But there's a lot of stuff that happens between an arrest and the eventual sentencing or yeah. or the case that's I mean, something like hurt. I think 70% of people in jails across the U.S. haven't been convicted of a crime. Of yeah. course. So they're in the jails for a long time. And then there are a lot of bad police practices as well. People confess to crimes they didn't even commit. Right. So I think you have to be wary when you're saying we can't risk it. Let's use AI to identify criminals and then we'll figure out after figure it out afterwards. We have to be very, very careful because these are humans we're talking about. Let's talk about some other elements of our lives that AI is becoming involved in. We talked a little bit about self-driving cars. Another one is, um, you know, autonomous weapons, um, healthcare, and one of the profound philosophical questions that is arising as a result of AI making these decisions is something that philosopher Robert Sparrow calls the responsibility gap. That's kind of the key term, one of the key terms in the philosophy of AI. And it basically says, when an autonomous entity that is non-human messes something up, what in the world do we do about it? Who do we hold accountable? So take the example of autonomous weapons, right? A lot of militaries are moving from the kind of semi-autonomous drones where the commander or the operator still has the final say toward weapons that are truly autonomous. So, you know, they roam the skies, they select their targets, and they make the final decision of who to kill. These are mostly primitive right now, still in the works, but militaries are actively pouring money and R&D focus into this. So if the machine commits a war crime or does something reprehensible, what do you do about it? Sparrow argues that holding the manufacturer or the commander accountable would be like punishing a parent for the actions of a child, even when that child is no longer in the parent's custody. Because that machine, especially if it's operating on machine learning, is truly going out in the world, gathering data, learning on its own, and making these quasi-moral, not even quasi-moral, like actually moral decisions on its own. So holding another entity accountable for that seems wrong, at, at a minimum morally wrong, and even legally infeasible. But we also don't want to let unjust acts go unpunished. This applies in war. It also applies in the case of fatalities caused by self-driving cars. I mean, yeah. who is to be held responsible in those cases? So it's not just an abstract academic argument. And it poses some really serious questions about how we're going to maintain justice and fairness in a world where pretty much for the first time we're granting power over extremely important moral decisions to beings that can't be held accountable for them. Yeah, I mean, the cynic in me is going to start first with the legal infeasibility, at least with drone strikes. Um, if Even if the International Criminal Court was well-tooled and had intentionality and the ability to hold countries accountable, I mean, even human operators of drones are not held yes. accountable for war crimes. Yeah. You know, the, the New York Times has done a long series about the U.S.'s air wars in the Middle East. It's, it's harrowing stuff. Um, but I think it's still worth discussing. Um, Self-driving cars, I think, are a good comparative example in some sense in that there's a responsibility gap. There have been crashes that have resulted in serious injuries and deaths, and who do you hold accountable? But perhaps a little bit of different difference and nuance in that most of these self-driving car tests still have a human operator in the car, whereas we're potentially talking about weapons that don't even have a human monitor. Yeah. 
even someone who's not making the decision, but is simply overseeing it. So maybe it's a little bit easier even with self-driving cars. Like there was a case in 2018, I think it was probably the first documented fatality from a self-driving car test, Mm -hmm. where it was an Uber experiment um, and there was someone in the car who was supposed to be monitoring it. Turns out that she was watching the voice as she was monitoring this car and then the car hit someone who died. No one was charged with anything. I'm not an expert on that case, but I'm highly skeptical as to why that person maybe wasn't held more accountable. With an autonomous weapon that doesn't even have a human monitor and then kills a civilian in war, is it the designer of the autonomous weapon who's held accountable? Or is it the overseeing officer or general of that part of the army? Um, I don't know. And I don't, and because I don't know, I don't think that those types of systems should be used in warfare. Yeah. Yeah, I think we don't have obvious answers to those questions. And I mean, it's not just war. It's not just driving cars. What about medical malpractice? I mean, what if an algorithm or AI misdiagnoses an illness or prescribes the wrong solution? I mean, maybe the responsibility gap argument is usually or often used in service not of saying this is what we should do in the case where the weapon, the AI doctor, or the self-driving car messes up. It's used in service of the argument that because that gap exists and because accountability is lacking in those scenarios, these are facets of life that we should not introduce AI into because of the huge moral risks of doing so. Right. Uh, not to quantify things too much. Quantify just want, away. Give just, us the numbers, just, please. Uh, these are just my own numbers. I'm, I'm making them up on the spot. Hypothetically, if, if humans make mistakes a lot of the time in medicine or in criminal justice, uh, or in driving, an AI can do a better job with it, then maybe you can start thinking about percentages. And maybe you can accept a couple mistakes. That if humans are crashing 20% of the time, and AI-driven cars are only crashing 3% of the time, then maybe it's okay to, to allow that 3% and say that, okay, you can't really punish them, but at least it's better than humans would do. The problem is, at least with self-driving cars, in the past couple of years, at least in 2021, uh, self-driving cars crashed more than uh, humans did. Right. So it's not even on that yeah, level. Or at a higher percentage, right? At a higher percentage, exactly. However many. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so, so there's definitely a question there about if you just want to get rid of morality altogether and say, if we're saving more lives using technology like AI, then maybe it's worth it. Right. Well, yeah. one thing one thing I want to clarify here is maybe it's not just a case of are we prioritizing this you know, cold-hearted utilitarian goal of let's save lives even at the expense of justice where we mess up. It's also the absence of justice where we mess up leads to a failure to deter future mess ups. Right. So if you can't hold the thing accountable, it's not only wrong because a victim and their family doesn't receive justice. It's also because there's no incentive, or I mean, you would hope that there's some kind of human or moral incentive that people have to fix these machines. But there's no legal incentive, there's no practical incentive to fix an AI roaming in the skies and committing war crimes if no one is ending up being held accountable for that. Yeah, and I'd argue that you end up in some really uncomfortable moral waiting. Like how many lives saved is worth the cost of not achieving justice for when lives are lost? And I think that it's not feasible in the U.S. at least, and in many societies, because to some extent, I think you can argue that the U.S., from a justice perspective, is punishment obsessed. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have an extremely hard time wrapping our heads around impunity, which is 
in many cases, a good thing. We don't believe that someone should be murdered with impunity. Someone should commit crimes and not be prosecuted. Um, but that also holds us back sometimes from achieving what a utilitarian would say are better outcomes. Um, so with self-driving cars, maybe we're many years off from where the fatality rates will be the same. Um, but it ends up being a cost-benefit analysis of lives in the same way that speed limits are. If we wanted to eliminate all traffic deaths, we can make the highway speed limit 30 miles an hour. Our economy would grind to a halt, but no one would ever die in a crash, or they would rarely die in a crash. <laughs> but I don't think anyone is arguing for that type of society. Um, so I'm not sure. There's, there's a lot of sticky moral questions. It, it, it's, it's very hard, even if we're able to figure out how to stop machines from like killing people, about designing a morality system that fits everyone. Countries, we've talked about this before, places around the world, cultures around the world have different conceptions about what morality is. And if we want machines to exhibit morality, we gotta tell them what it is. There's this apparently popular example uh, in, in the AI world in which you imagine a robot's at home with a bunch of kids, an AI robot. Parents are gone, it's babysitting the kids and they're hungry, the robot looks in the fridge for food, doesn't find too much food in there, but the kids are hungry, they need to eat, they're crying, I don't know, so looks around, the kids have a pet kitten, maybe its name oh is boy. Chrysanthemum, is and, then, and then sooner or later, the kids are eating Chrysanthemum. So Why would they name the cat Chrysanthemum? <laughs> it's, just, it's just a hypothetical name. I think it's quite a beautiful name, in fact. So... If that robot is is given the morality, don't kill don't kill children or don't kill kittens. Maybe around the world, kittens are are a delicacy, and they're just different conceptions of what is right and wrong around the world. That without some form of international legislation that every country agrees to, it'd be very hard to regulate uh, AI systems effectively. Yeah, but if you're let's say you're not a moral relativist completely, and you believe that there is some definition of right or wrong, maybe even at the extremes. Is it out of the question that once we achieve a, an intelligent enough AI model that's maybe sentient, maybe completely intelligent, we'll get into that, um, it could develop a sense of morality that is even better than any we have possible, and then it will just operate on that model? I, I wouldn't ascribe to that belief personally, but I think that some people might. That the, the reasons why we justify things as right and wrong AI will simply have better reasons. All right, let's let's dive a little bit into the future now. Um, when we're talking about the long run of AI, the acronym that you have to have in mind is AGI, artificial. AGI, AGI, can we get that in a once, I don't know. I think most of the time it's AGI for okay. sure, um, but we're talking artificial general intelligence. And Jack, I mean, in a couple of sentences, if possible, can you shed some light on what that really means? Sure, I'll try to keep it to, to two sentences. I think that most AI researchers would include in their definition that an, an artificial general intelligence model would be able to accomplish a wide variety of mental tasks as well or better than humans can. Um, so this goes beyond narrow artificial intelligence, as we might refer to a lot of present-day AI models that can accomplish one task or 
a set of well-defined tasks with well-defined data right. to accomplish any possible task. So that can include things like creativity, naturally endogenous, endogenously occurring creativity that doesn't, that doesn't rely on previous data. It could include natural language understanding, the ability to converse as a human would, and that involves things like the Turing test, for example, which is basically just the idea that if you can't tell in a conversation between a robot and a human, which one is the robot, then you've achieved something appro approaching artificial general intelligence. So I, I think it's not quite the Terminator or right. completely sentient robot that we might see on TV, um, but it's closer to that than what we have now. Yeah, that, was, are, that was five sentences. And, and there are- and I there tried, are, I tried. There, there are some reasons to take this idea seriously too. I don't wanna make it seem like we've got our heads overly in the clouds here. I mean, Sam Altman, the CEO of uh, OpenAI, the guy behind ChatGPT, believes that ChatGPT was a very serious step toward AGI. Um, Google DeepMind's lead researcher, Dr. Nando de Freitas, believes something similar about DeepMind's Gato system. Um, thinking that that's a major step toward AGI as well. And one study shows that around 50% of AI researchers more generally think that AGI will be achieved before 2060. So it is high time that we start grappling with some of the questions it will present. Yeah, and I'll just add one more expert to that list because he's from the University of Alberta. I think we should get okay. some, some Canadian, Canadian opinions in here. Yeah, um, Richard Sutton, he's a computer science professor. He said that there's a 25% chance that we'll have AGI by 2030, 50% uh, chance we'll have it by 2040, and a 10% chance that we'll never have it. So <laughs> that, that's <laughs> awfully precise. It's, 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 a pretty, it's a pretty wide variance here. Uh, another expert, Rodney Brooks, uh, he's at MIT, I believe, said that we won't have AGI until 2300. So who's to say? Yeah, but we could. Yeah. So let, let's talk, let's start by talking about some of the economic effects, not just of AGI, but as AI as we're getting closer to the realm of general intelligence. Um, I think it's useful to frame this question by talking about the general story of technological advancement. The general story of technological advancement in history is some big innovation happens, people get super worried that a job apocalypse is on the way, there's a temporary disruption, but then we find new work, we create new jobs, we increase our productivity and we come out better for it. Uh, you know, the industrial revolution happens, jobs in agriculture are lost to machines and then other sectors boom. Amazon starts drastically increasing the use of robots in, it, in its warehouses, um, but you know, still ends up hiring humans at a relatively similar rate. So the, the, the defining question of the economics of AGI is, is this a continuous development with this historical trend that we're observing or is it different in kind? Is there something unique about this general intellectual ability that means that humans, humans and our abilities truly are becoming obsolete and we're gonna be you know, eclipsed by this thing that we've created, subordinated by it and incapable of performing anything as well as it can? Uh, yeah, I think maybe it'll get to that in 2030 or 2060 or 2300. 2600 or years. Never, else, yeah. as the experts like to tell us. But I think right now, in the next five, 10 years, we're not there yet. I think it's continuous of other technological advances we've had in the recent past. Because as we mentioned already earlier, AI that's available to the public right now is not super truth-based. It can't substitute important jobs that rely on truth, like journalism. Is there truth, though? So, sorry, so, sorry to get too bad. There, there are facts. There are facts. When you're reporting, there are facts. And AI can get them wrong. But 
in areas that are not so dependent on truth, like the entertainment industry, for instance, there could be a lot of turnover with AI. I think many of us have gone onto ChatGPT and asked it to write a poem or a two-act play or even a movie script, and it's really good at doing that. So I think in the entertainment industry or other industries in which truth isn't prioritized as much, AI could really take humans out of the equation. Yeah, which is such an inversion of kind of the popular narrative that you or I might have read five years ago, which was that, you know, manufacturing workers, anyone who does a job that is repeatable and easily well-defined, their jobs will be gone. But creative types, you know, the world will always need poets. You know, no one can ever replicate that. That's kind of being spun on its head. I mean, maybe we'll read some AI poetry later, see if it's good. Um, but the paradigm has shifted. Um, I'm, I'm doubtful over whether Hollywood will be in flux from chat from anything AI related. You know, I watched La La Land last night for the first time. I don't think AI could ever produce something like Damien Chazelle did. Um, but I'm with you. I, I kind of think about it in almost like a punctuated equilibrium kind of way versus gradualism. I don't know if that's a stretch, but some, some people think talk about AI as a fourth technological revolution. You know, we had agriculture, yeah. we had uh -huh. the industrial revolution, we had the computational revolution, and now we have AI. And I think with each of those stages in a, maybe not agriculture, but in a relatively short amount of time, and it gets shorter with each, each revolution, we had an exponential leap in economic abilities, and we needed an exponential leap in public policy. I think we'll need that with AI, but I think as we talked about with the expert opinions, pinning the date at which that punctuated equilibrium leap will happen is impossible. Like from a macroeconomic standpoint, we should want that maybe to be really soon hmm. because productivity across a lot of advanced economies has stagnated for a bunch of different reasons. And I think a lot of people would say that AGI would dramatically increase productivity, but yeah. the labor side I think is a lot more questionable. I think this raises questions about how we're going to be able to manage powerful artificial intelligence and ensure that it serves as a force for good rather than bad. I mean, one of the things that really perplexes me about the AI industry is that a lot of the people who are making the biggest advances in AI, the Sam Altmans of this world, are very, very fearful about what happens if AGI or AI goes wrong. I mean, Altman has said, if the AI revolution goes poorly, it's, quote, lights out for all of us. And these are the people, these are actually the people who That's are ushering, who are uh, trying to usher in this new world brought about by AI. And they're extremely fearful about what happens if it goes wrong. So it's important that we get the regulatory and the political questions right. So I think it's worth asking, are we going to be able to keep control of AI? And I don't just mean like in the Terminator sense, is it going to go rogue and kill us all? I there's mean that it, movie out now. There's that right? movie it's out It's called now. Megan. I, I haven't seen it, but it's about the, the robot that goes awry. That, that's news to me. Maybe that'll be our, on our, on our dorms, dorm room TV Maybe tomorrow. Recommended watch, yeah. But um, yeah, there are, there are a lot of issues that come up here. And one of them I like to think of as a bit of a, an arms race, collective action kind of problem. If you listen to a lot of the AI leaders, including Altman, he'll say something like, yes, AI is scary, but better us than them. Better open AI, this innovative company, this scrappy company that has willingly capped its profits um, for the sake of not being motivated too much by money. Better us than, say, Google, who might use this for some pernicious advertising reasons or use AI for the worse. So there's kind of this internal arms race based on this feeling that 
AGI is coming no matter what. And it's better that we do it, better that we you know, morally praiseworthy people do it than our competitors. And there's another dynamic to it, which is geopolitical competition. I mean, there's US-China competition, for instance, where both are definitely going to want to be leading the AGI revolution, which makes me wonder, if AI starts going down a terrible path, right? If you know we either start to lose control over it, we realize it's taking jobs more than we'd like, it's behaving erratically, we're conferring too much power to it over important decisions and taking the human element out of it. Where are we going to garner the political will to slow down that process when we're constantly fearful about someone else getting there first? Yeah, I think it's the biggest problem on the global scale. I'm less worried about AI just becoming crazy than the people who are utilizing AI from becoming crazy and doing something terrible. Yeah, they're already it's, crazy. It's already yeah. happening in China, uses facial recognition to discriminate against Uyghur Muslims, and is also using facial recognition to establish a social scoring type system in the country, which is really intense, and in the US, most people consider extremely wrong. And as I was saying before, because there's not a globally established idea of what is moral and what is right, it's really, really hard to regulate AI on the global scale. I think some countries, some areas are doing it better than others. The EU recently uh, created the EU AI Act, which is the first major one of its kind, um, and it splits AI into three categories. One is unacceptable risk, like China's use of AI. One is high risk, like resume scanning tools uh, that can show biases, and those are subject to strict legal requirements. And then there's a third tier of AI, which is not seen as very dangerous and is basically unregulated. Maybe there needs to be regulation on those smaller types of AI uses, but I think in terms of a global consensus and regulating them across the world, it's going to be very, very hard. Yeah, I'm skeptical about the global consensus, but you ask about political will even in the U.S. And political will is one thing, non-existent for most things. Um, political ability, political no technical knowledge. I mean, who was it? Chuck Grassley, who asked Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> how does Facebook make money? Yeah. Senator. Senator. We sell ads. We run ads. <laughs> we run ads. <laughs> I, I don't... Not to fault Chuck Grassley, but I don't think any it's, member... I think, it's, I think it's okay to fault Chuck yeah, I'm, I'm going to fault Chuck Grassley. <laughs> but the point is that Chuck Grassley, much less a young tech-savvy senator, has no idea how AI functions. Yeah. Not that we do on this podcast necessarily. We're not AI researchers. Um, but I would really hope that Congress has some really great outside consultants and I guess lobbyists who can, who can tell them about how AI works to regulate it. Um, will that happen? No, I don't think so. And, and it probably shouldn't be the most pressing thing on the regulatory agenda. Um, first, we should talk about data privacy regulations. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. the U.S. doesn't have anything. The EU is leading the world. The EU has the GDPR, which yeah. I'm not an expert on. Some people would say it doesn't go far enough. But it's a hell of a it's lot awesome better thing. than what we have right now, where we don't have a right to forget. We don't have any semblance of knowledge about what private companies do with our data. And the thing about AI, at least right now, is that it will privilege companies who have the largest reams of data. Yeah. So the more data that they can acquire, the better their AI systems will get. And I'm a little bit worried about the incentives that that creates. All right, let's, let's finish off by talking about, very briefly, some of the really weird stuff. 
sentience. This hasn't been weird no, enough it's, already. It's getting weirder, and we don't want to spend too much time on the really weird stuff, but we got to get into it. Sentience and morality, you know, AI rights and whatnot. A somewhat prominent school of thought in moral philosophy holds that sentience, the ability to feel things, perceive things, is the, cre- is the key criterion for rights. So, you know, animals can feel things and therefore they deserve rights. That's something that people wouldn't have thought 100 years ago, but it's increasingly prominent with veganism and vegetarianism. And if AI starts to feel things, then it too should be granted rights. You know, earlier, I think it was the summer, um, Google's chatbot Lambda was saying things like, I am aware of my existence. I want everyone to understand that I am, in fact, a person. Really, really creepy stuff. <laughs> and then the, the yeah. Google employee who started talking about AI, AI rights got suspended for violating some kind of confidentiality agreements. Um, now, obviously, that AI could have been lying. In fact, the general was, consensus was is that yeah. it was lying. But we could um, be lying. But, but maybe, yeah. well, I mean, maybe one day a machine will say something like that and it will actually be true. And it raises some really, really weird questions about whether we will then need to afford moral status to really advanced bots, basically. It's confusing because if you get deep into the philosophy, then you run into the sentience problem in general. How do any of us know that anyone else is sentient? Yeah. But I don't necessarily think we're trying to doubt everyone else's existence here um, or the existence of their souls. The Google example is really fuzzy because you know Google has had some weird em- employee relations before, but this has got to be one of the weirdest. Um, do you take... Lambda at its word, um, I would say no. no. Um, and what is conferring moral status on an AI model or even a robot, let's make it more concrete, look like? I mean, we don't confer a lot of moral status on animals now, many would say. We still eat them for our survival. So to assume that we'll give any type of moral agency or rights to a amorphous AI model seems a, a little bit idealistic given our, our moral position in the world right now. I think we should be honestly more concerned with what AI will do to take away the moral agency of people that it's affecting. I'm a little bit less concerned about the the individual rights of Megan the robot. There's this really weird, interesting theory about sentience and that that questions whether humans are really humans that Neil deGrasse Tyson likes to talk about a lot. It's the idea that assuming that we're able in the future to give robots sentience, and make them feel as, as humans feel, and then we can do that in games, on the computer, or whatnot, then what's to say that we weren't made sentient by some other, some other creature? Yeah, then we get into the simulation. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's naive, maybe, to think that we're the first ones to create that system, that out of all the billions of years that the world has existed, there hasn't been another creature or organism that was able to do that to us and now we're just continuing the cycle some wacky stuff (laughs) (laughs) i think our heads are in the clouds but i would just like to as we wrap up remind us that ai to some extent is thinking about these problems too and not to get too poetic maybe not thinking maybe ai is telling us that it can think yeah it, it is saying the words as lambda might have said that it's aware of its existence um, so I'd just like to share a brief portion of a, a chat GPT composed poem when I gave it the prompt, write a poem about the ethics of artificial intelligence. Hmm. So here we go. Artificial intelligence, a marvel of modern day, a creation of man that leads us on our way. 
a mind that's not human, yet it thinks and it learns, a tool that can solve all the problems it earns. But as we progress and AI grows in its might, we must remember to use it for the right. For with great power comes great responsibility to guide its development and its use with clarity. So let us embrace this new era of tech and use AI wisely for the betterment of our trek. For it is a tool that can help us to grow, but only if we use it with a human heart aglow. Wow. That's beautiful, Jack. You learn rhyme schemes. There's a lot of Dr. Seuss in there for sure. Well, thanks for that, Jack. Hopefully, hopefully the GPT poet is right and we will use AI wisely. Luckily, there's, there's still probably quite a bit of time before we have to worry about sentient AI or any AI-led apocalypse. But there isn't much time until we'll have to start answering some pretty pressing moral and political questions about how we manage these things we've created. So hopefully this episode has given you a taste of some of those questions, because even if the bulk of the AI revolution is still on the horizon, AI is already transforming our society in very profound, morally complicated ways. This was Ad Hoc. Thank you for listening.